Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is John Arbuckle, a Missouri farmer who is transitioning his pork production from a grain-based diet to one of perennial pasture and forage. Today, John and I talk about his life as a farmer and how he's doing this work of transitioning towards a perennial system. Familiar with permaculture, he uses tiered priorities to describe his zone model of production, which influences how he interacts with the land. To establish this kind of system, John also takes a long view of this work, looking out 20 years and further in order to reasonably move from the current model to something perennial and permanent. More on that in a few moments. Before we begin, I am in fundraising mode this fall and need your help to get 2015 off to a good start. If you are in a place where you have some financial surplus in your life, please consider making a one-time or ongoing monthly contribution to the show. Find out how at www.thepermaculturepodcast.com support. And you can find out more about John and his pastured products at baconsnacksticks.com. Now then, on to Mr. Arbuckle. I'll join you again afterwards. Then, John, Mr. Arbuckle, if you could give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to do what you're doing, and we'll take the conversation from there. My name's John Arbuckle. I have a farm called Singing Prairie. My children, uh, Noah and Zia Mary, are the 10th consecutive generation born on a small family farm in America. Came over and started farming from Scotland in 1732 and uh, have just done all sorts of things, but usually revolving around, you know, livestock and, and crop production through all that time. In 2010, I moved to northeast Missouri and uh, started what I call Singing Prairie Farm, which is an experiment in low-input sustainable agriculture. And we define input as what is purchased and comes to the farm on a truck. If we can create it here on the farm, we kind of think of it differently. So Another thing I guess that pointed me in the direction that I'm at right now is I worked with uh, the Department of Cultural Preservation for the White Mountain Apache Tribe in East Central Arizona for kind of on and off for six years. And we ran a a program called Family Gardens of the White Mountain Apache. And when I started that program, I really didn't know all that much about indigenous agriculture, but I had this really kind of unexplainable burning desire to get very, very deeply in indigenous agriculture. So that gave me a good excuse to work with the older generations of native Apache farmers and to hear their wisdom about how how they can touch the earth, you know, and not degrade it and instead create a, a generative system through all kinds of agriculture. How do they plant their fence rows? How do they, you know, control water passage on their property? Just all sorts of things like that. So it it got me really deeply looking at uh, indigenous agriculture. And then after six years of uh, work in that capacity, I went uh, to Mexico and I lived in the Copper Canyon National Park. Uh, It's just a park on paper. It's not a real park, so to speak. But And I worked with uh, native Terramara Indians on food security projects and just learned from them, you know, and I found just incredible things in these subtropical canyons. There were old men who were intercropping all kinds of nut, fruit, and wild plants together deliberately in these big clumps. That, I guess, in combination with some of Bill Mollison's older books, was my first first look at permaculture. 
so um, after seeing people doing that sort of thing, you know, having systems of agriculture that didn't rely on giant trucks bringing stuff to them exclusively, but instead they were relying on the smart passage of time combined with human skill and love. And I said, well, golly, there's a, there's a real application for that back in the Midwest, you know, where it, it rains during the growing season. We have a decently long growing season and we have uh, decent soil to work with. I said, well, it would be pretty, pretty great to do, you know, to apply some of that wisdom back at my place. So that's what we started. We started trying to apply what I'd learned and seen over those years, uh, but here in Missouri. How much acreage are you currently growing on where you are? The farm is 50 acres, and then the more intensive cultivation happens closer to the house and then becomes less and less intensive the farther we get from the house. So, for example, uh, we have our house, and our house is not in the middle of the property. The, the house is in one right on the on the northern edge. So, well, we're, shall we say, 50 feet from my northern edge. We may be 2,000 feet from my southern edge. So, closest to the house, we have a small orchard. We have several uh, vegetable gardens, which are raised bed on contour gardens. And then, progressively moving away from there, we have an alternating checkerboard of cultivated cropland where we grow, we essentially grow almost nothing but soil building cover crops. We grow a few other things like garlic and sweet corn and watermelons, but that takes up a very small percentage of our cultivated land space uh, relative to the soil building cover crops. And those soil building cover crops are then self-harvested using grazing hogs. Then we work farther away from there. When we get farther, farther south, you know, farther away from the house than that, we come to uh, very hilly ground. And in February, we frost seed red clover into areas of permanent pasture, never tilled ground because it's so hilly, where the pigs have already grazed and removed a strong percentage of the surface material that will allow the red clover to and the freeze and thaw cycle to work in to the ground and then be able to, you know, bloom and prosper in um, perhaps May of the following year, where we'd like to have a really strong percentage of the vegetative structure in legumes. That's something that pigs really like, and it's also nitrogen fixing, too, at the same time. And then when we move farther away from there, it gets pretty wild and woolly, and uh, we have two creeks. We have about 15 acres of timber, which is mostly cedar, maple, uh, honey locust, and a small bit of oak. And then our our very back, the farthest away from the house, is um, extremely hilly, sort of unimproved uh, grassland, where um, in the past we've uh, grazed beef cattle. You mentioned pigs and beef and some vegetables and things. What are your primary products on the farm? Our primary product is uh, our uh, bacon snack sticks. So after grazing these pigs for about seven months, they've reached market weight, and almost all of the meat uh, gets turned into snack sticks, a shelf-stable snack stick that's sweetened with maple sugar. We also offer soup bones for uh, making soup stock. 
We have spare ribs, baby back ribs. We produce lots of lard, which I like to jokingly refer to as uh, sunshine in a bottle. We have some smoked hawks. Uh, in the past, we've done 100% grass-fed beef, but we're not really doing that this year because we're trying to focus on having the most forage-finished pig as we can. We just want all of our time to be there. And we also raise Thanksgiving turkeys. I guess additionally, we raise organic heirloom watermelons every other year. Uh, we do that to disrupt the squash bug and uh, spotted cucumber beetle life cycle. So there's just nothing for them to eat in the intervening years. We grow organic garlic and a very small patch of sweet corn. Is the sweet corn for your family or also for sale to customers? We have it for sale for customers, but we don't deliver it. So people kind of have to come here. It's kind of all, all of the other vegetables are all on farm sales. And we are able to ship the bacon snack sticks. And uh, most of the other things we wholesale through health food stores and buying clubs. With the products that you're raising, one of the common questions that I receive is about whether or not you're self-sufficient on the farm as far as income is concerned, or are you also working off the farm? This is my only job. I'm a full-time farmer, but I wouldn't be able to pull it off uh, without my wife being an acupuncturist. So we're, uh, we're not a one-income farm family which I, is increasingly rare in the world. We're a two-income family, which I kind of enjoy. Uh, most of in nature, I see you know, diversity, lending strength, stability. So I enjoy that uh, chance of an off-farm income with my wife being an acupuncturist. And how long have you been farming full-time? Let's see. It's been five years here in Missouri. I was an organic vegetable producer before that. And Let's see, gosh, before, so that would be, shall we say, eight or nine years in full-time farming. Before that, I was a whitewater rafting guide for my college and shortly after life. And then, you know, if we go rewind a step farther, um, I grew up on a, a small, diverse family farm in Illinois. So I guess of my adult life, I would say nine years of full-time farming. And one of the things that I wanted to talk with you about is that you're doing perennial crops for your forage for your pigs. What is that process like? And did you make a conversion to that from doing other feedstock? Like, what was that process like to move to this point where you're doing forage-raised pigs? Well, um, a lot of it started out with the wisdom that I'd seen Native people show, you know, that um, there are kinds of human involvement with nature that are not what I would call not destructive. And just seeing that that's a possibility, you know, is really awesome. I guess I would take that and then I would kind of spice it with a few circumstances. For one, you know, we have gone back and forth between being uh, certified organic feed, you know, grain for our animals that consume grain and, uh, and just non-GMO. And neither of those things are readily accessible at a local feed store where I am. So, We'd have to be bringing, you know, that's something that we'd have to be brought in. Now, one year uh, we experienced, um, in 2012, we experienced a pretty big disruption in the flow of off-farm grain coming to the farm. And the truck didn't come, you know, the truck didn't come and we ran out of feed and the truck didn't come. It still didn't come for weeks. And you know, I, I didn't want to break, you know, our, our contracts and our, our commitments to our customers and saying that we were either non-GMO or organic. 
So I really did some serious head scratching when I realized that we were going to run out and we weren't going to be resupplied for a long time. So, you know, you, you walk around the farm and you're like, well, what is, what can pigs be eating? And I had one field planted in a cover crop of peas, which I had not done specifically for the pigs. I just done it as a soil building cover crop. We'd planted it in March and, uh, as fate would have it, when we experienced that grain disruption, it was in you know full production, you know excellent biomass, uh, excellent carbohydrate load, excellent protein load, and uh, we had a um, a portable pig pen, and we just would use draft horses and move the portable pig pen around the pea patch, and I'd also in the springtime planted uh, four 200 foot rows of uh, turnips. So I thought, well, golly, I've, I've got an awful lot of peas and I've got an awful lot of turnips and that's what I've got. So that's what I'm going to feed. So I've, I raised that group of pigs on uh, peas and turnips for the whole time that there was no, no grain coming. And uh, we also were, uh, we were an organic egg wholesaler at the time. We had uh, 650 laying hens uh, on pasture and which is a lot of laying hens to have on pasture. And we would sometimes get cracked eggs or extremely dirty eggs um, or eggs with very thin shells that you could kind of see they were going to be thin shells by their texture. And we would offer those to the pigs. So they weren't exclusively forage-based, but they were, they were pretty high. And at the end of that two- or three-week section, the pigs were no worse for the wear. You know, In fact, they were uh, significantly larger. They had succeeded in meeting their nutritional needs well enough to keep growing. And they were relatively small pigs. So smaller pigs have a tighter bullseye of nutritional needs. When the pig gets bigger, you know, you can uh, relax a little bit on protein quantity or crude protein and and a few other things. But when they're small, um, you really have to nail it. And it turns out that what we had on hand uh, did nail it. And then I started tinkering around with, with the economics of it. And I saw just how cheap it was to have established, you know, cover crops, turnips, and throwaway eggs as compared to the grain that I was receiving. And I thought, well, why don't I just do this instead? And then, you know, I, you know, one of our goals is being, being native to our farm. And I start looking at our farm and our farm just simply isn't suitable for large scale tillage. And then I would start working my way into, well, how do we establish perennials that would allow our land to be as productive as possible? How do we have a perennial polyculture that we can graze pigs on and successfully bring pigs to market weight in a a reasonable amount of time? And I guess that experience is what really pointed me towards perennial polycultures for grazing pigs. With this idea of perennial polycultures for pigs, what did you transition now to growing specifically for them to meet this early uh, life cycle nutrition, as well as then your finishing nutrition? Our top tier is a perennial polyculture. We still use a few annual polycultures. And then our lowest tier is, well, let me rewind that. So top tier, best thing, perennial polycultures. Second step down is annual polycultures. Next step down after that would be locally available, unsellable produce which usually would be a combination of apples, pears, jack-o'-lanterns, potatoes, cucumbers, stuff like that. So that's next year. And then last, bottom of the list is 
imported non-GMO grains. Those are the arrows in our quiver, which we reach for, you know, in order of importance. So how do we solve the problem of hitting the tighter bullseye at younger ages is then we still supplement with a non-GMO grain. And then we just try to get them enough of everything else that, um, that they continue growing and, and being comfortable. So annual polycultures pack a bigger punch in terms of nutrition than some perennials. And they also produce a, a larger tonnage, a larger biomass. So when the pigs are freshly weaned, they're still receiving um, a non-GMO grain supplement in a small quantity, and they're receiving a really large quantity of like a superfood, like pea vines or turnips or vegetative oats. And then as the season progresses, they'll oftentimes move into, um, into a summer annual polyculture. This year, that included um, the annual would have been sorghum Sudan grass, uh, which the pigs ate in great quantity, and uh, red clover. As the pigs were growing, their need for, for protein was decreasing. That was kind of nice. As, as the, every day that they grew and succeeded, um, they needed a little bit less, you know, or it got them closer to the next threshold line. So by the time that fall got here and they were large and, you know, big 250-pound pigs, we've been dumping a whole lot of uh, cabbage, uh, you know, no-spray cabbage, no-spray apples, no-spray pears, pumpkin, squash into their pens. And that continues to, um, well, up till this, this last really, really cold snap, uh, they were grazing really well on red clover. And then we'd still offer them um, a decreased quantity of non-GMO grain. Is this system of perennial polycultures for pigs still kind of a new experiment for you to be working through in order to make this transition to a point where you can no longer be using non-GMO grain or even the discarded vegetable waste? That's the goal, you know. Both of those things, you know, while discarded vegetable waste has a very low ecological footprint because it's a waste product, um, it still is imported from off the farm. And as we express our desire through action of being greater and greater, having greater and greater indigenous, you know, trust in our land, it becomes more and more closed loop. So the need for perennial polycultures gets bigger and bigger as we gain experience, as we realize, you know, is this possible? Is what we're talking about a reasonable goal? And um, the more we look at it, the more I believe it is a reasonable goal. But like some permaculture stuff, you know, we live in a climate where we have a significant growing season, but we also have a significant not growing season. We have a significant cold season. So a lot of the um, species that we might add to a perennial polyculture for um, diversity's sake, such as apples, pears, chestnuts, Siberian pea shrub, I guess it's called. Those really take some time to establish. Also, uh, a great, you know, great plants would be, there's called a pig nut hickory. There's some hickory nuts and there's lots of oaks that are very copious acorn bearing oaks that have a, a more palatable, palatable acorn. There's a difference in taste in acorns, it turns out. So with all that knowledge, what we're doing is we're kind of setting ourselves up to be in a position to establish what I would call a commercial permaculture farm that would be based on some of these like woody perennials offering 
a significant amount of feed value to the pigs in their season. But always, uh, my impression is, my understanding is, is that perennial forages will almost always out-yield woody plants, you know, such as apples and pears and chestnuts, in terms of uh, harvestable biomass. And when I mean harvestable, can they graze it, meet their nutritional needs, and gain? Can they grow? Can they produce an edible product for humans from something that would have been a lot less edible to humans, Uh, like red clover? Maybe a person could eat that, but if a pig can gain weight on that and turn it into bacon, you know, all the better for me. So that's the direction that we're headed in. And I believe that to be a 20-year project, you know, with the permaculture design and, you know, adding swales and maybe some, uh, you know, key line, you know, plowing, the establishment of apple, you know, pear, chestnut trees, establishing a really, really abundant fields of either alfalfa or red clover, uh, in between very widely spaced tree plantings on contour, being able to uh, create lots of small and deep ponds for water security. I think it's a 20-year project, but I think it's also really important for for people to, to take on 20-year projects. You know, one would hope that we have 20 years to complete our projects or to work on our projects. And, you know, 20 years is going to pass whether or not we're pursuing our dreams or not, you know. So we might as well pursue our dreams and take the plunge towards those 20-year projects. Currently, with this transitional system that you're working on, how many pigs are you raising in a season? We raised 99 pigs this year, and some of them, I would call them the control group, they didn't experience any grain reduction. They would be the group of pigs that just got the regular prescribed amount of grain and then were kept on what I call unimproved pasture, which was largely fescue. Fescue is not a very nutritious grass, and it's very high fiber. And there are different life cycle stages of grass which show them to be more or less edible. So the younger and more tender a grass is, the more edible it is. So Anyway, the control group was kept on our worst ground. Uh, they were essentially just free-range. They were just pastured pigs. They were not necessarily what I would call grazing pigs. They were not necessarily receiving a lot of benefit from the ground they were standing on. And then our experiment group, they received a significant uh, reduction in grain as well as significantly improved grazing opportunities. And we had several groups of pigs that were like that, really, but we only took data on one. We've only been recording data on those two groups, um, the control and the experiment group. So, well, we did raise 99 pigs this year. I would say three quarters of them were on a reduced grain diet, a higher forage diet, and some of them were, were not at all reduced grain, just so we could have something to compare for the purposes of a research study. Was that a research study you were working with with someone, a local university, or was this some research that you were undertaking in order to improve your perennial polyculture system? We applied for funding with Practical Farmers of Iowa, and uh, they agreed. So they offered us a small amount of money with which we'll do nutrient density testing of the meat. And what we hope to see is, this is our second year doing this sort of thing, 
What we hope to see is that pigs that were raised in this way on a reduced grain ration uh, have significantly more nutritious meat. A lot of that work has been done for, you know, the grass-fed, grass-finished beef. You know, if a cow has never tasted grain, the likelihood of its meat being extremely nutritious is, is the reality. If a cow is finished in a feedlot, you know, unfortunately, five days of grain can wash out 50 days worth of grazing's nutrition. What we're hoping we see through a lot of our laboratory research is that pigs raised with a strong percentage of their diet in forage will have greatly increased nutrition, just like cows. Is there a concern then that if you were to feed pigs grain at the end of that diet, that that would, as you say, wash out the um, nutritional improvements? I'm not sure um, about that. The digestive system of a cow um, is so different from a pig. You know, a cow has four stomachs, the first one being called the rumen, which is full of beneficial bacteria. And part of the washout that cattle experiences, I believe, comes as a systematic change when cows go from forage, their digestive system is mostly basic or more basic in terms of pH. And when you start giving a cow grain, its digestive system becomes more acidic. So my impression is that there's some uh, link between that and the washout. And, you know, pigs don't, I don't, I don't know if pigs would experience that washout of nutrition or not, but nobody's ever done that study. That is a new frontier of animal nutrition and management. There's room there if someone would like to take on that challenge. There is. I would like to see somebody take on that challenge or more of the challenges of beginning to wean us off of the grain dependency. And, you know, next year we're going for an 80% grain reduction in our two experiment groups. That'll be our third year. So I don't think it's positive or beneficial to move too quickly. You know, it, it's taken us, oh, three or four generations to get ourselves mired down in the level of grain dependency that we have. And I don't think it would be necessarily the smart move to try to jump out of it all in one year. You know, um, partially it's because a lot of the animals that we have have been selected for rate of gain while eating grain. You know, it's the grain to gain ratio. What we really need is we need, we need animals that can, uh, can, can root and forage and have digestive systems and physiology that allow for growth on forage. And that may take, that may take some time. That may take some time to have the genetics, the pasture improvement, the management, have all of those things lined up to the point where we're asking a reasonable question of the animals. That reminds me as you speak about the animals and this need for a transition. I was wondering what type of pigs are you currently raising? So let's see, we raise lots of different kinds of pigs and the kind that is participating in our research study this year it was a large black boar was the father, and that is a breed that's known for being a hardy outdoor grazing pig. And then the mother, the sows involved, were half Berkshire and half uh, Poland Old Spot. I guess I might also add that there's, there's a really big level of difference in both a, a breed's interest in grazing and their ability to transfer grazing physiologically from grass into meat. So um, there's a lot of, lot of selection, you know, involved in just watching, you know, which pigs are actually really happy grazing 
and then in addition to are they happy grazing, do you, do you see them with grass hanging out of their mouth, you know, on a regular basis? And are they getting bigger? And those are the pigs that don't take the field trip to the butcher shop. Those are the pigs that would stay here and offer their, you know, their genetics to the next generation. So you are looking to actively breed those pigs that are doing well on pasture and forage. I believe that to be very important because, you know, so many of our animal-based agricultural systems are so grain-dependent, you know, and grain dependency is essentially the same as uh, fossil fuel dependency. So if there was ever, um, you know, I mean, this is not uh, alarmism or doomsday talk, but I mean, it, it just seems natural that maybe one day gasoline would be more expensive. And do we want to give up 80% of our meat as a result of that? Or would we like to have more nutritious meat, you know, that's not fossil fuel dependent? I look at what's happening right now as we're recording this with the beef prices going up, up, up because of the drought situation right now and having to supplement feed for cattle and how that is a, a small picture about what could happen on a larger scale if we still need all of these different inputs in order to continue with agriculture as it is. Yeah, yeah. What will we end up with? The more cows that, uh, that finish their lives on, on grain just the, the less and less nutritious meat that we'll have available to us. Um, if we really want our meat to be as nutritious as possible, really just for our own good, you know, from, from that perspective, uh, animals that eat the greatest percentage of grass in their diet or forage or something green will offer us the most nutritious, the most heart-healthy, most disease-fighting nutrition in a really, really tight packaged bundle. From what you shared with us earlier about what you're doing with transitioning to perennials, it sounds then like what you're looking at as an idealized system would be a mixture of perennial pasture with perennial agroforestry to provide a variety of feed for the animals that comes from a also a diverse variety of sources. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. And I'd really ideally like to have as many species as uh, make sense, you know. If I could have, you know, six, eight, ten tree species, several bush species, oh, I don't know, 20, 25 perennial forage species. And then, you know, the annual polycultures are still a good insurance policy. You know, we can still create that sort of thing uh, using draft horses to have several acres of uh, really nutrient-density-packed forage wherever the land allows for it. Now, one thing about the perennials, when you mentioned oaks earlier, I think about how I have a red oak here that normally produces a real heavy flush of acorns every other year or so. So it's not a consistent source of acorns. In your system, would you store acorns or chestnuts or things like that for your pigs through the winter or in order to supplement the grain and, and further reduce that input? First and foremost, I kind of run my ideas in, in terms of priority. My top tier would involve the least labor and the least infrastructure on my part and the best management. So ideally, um, the pigs would self-harvest acorns just in their season and that the acorn season would largely run from late September through December 1st, at which point a different forage might come in. And uh, there are reports of people raising their, raising their pigs on alfalfa, which I consider to be a perennial, even though it, you know, needs to be replanted every three or four years. It's, uh, it still is, you know, more than one year of, of production. So 
I would consider everything in its season, you know, seasonal eating for pigs as well as people. And that in the perfect world, the pigs would consume their acorns and their hickory nuts in their season, and it wouldn't require me to gather them up for the pigs. In part because the amount of acorn gathering necessary to support a cottage industry would really be, would really be large. If I had um, a cost-effective or easy way to gather acorns, I would love to. I have a, I have a gravity flow grain wagon where we accept our non-GMO grain. I just I laugh and I daydream about, man, wouldn't it be fun to have grain bins full of acorns? <laughs> and I love that idea, but I, I don't know how to connect the dots to make that uh, a reality. But what we can do is we can let the pigs eat the acorns in the fall and early winter, uh, the hickory nuts in that amount of time, and, uh, and then move on to the next thing, you know, which might be more cost-effective uh, or lower labor to store, which more than likely would be you know, alfalfa or clover or uh, things of that nature. Through this conversation, I think that we've covered everything that I was interested in as an introduction to this idea of perennial polyculture for foraging. Is there anything else that you would like to add to this conversation for the listeners, John? So if you research nutrition, if you research animal nutrition, you can quite easily come to a point where you find a data table showing optimum nutritional needs. And what most experts will tell you is that the only way to reach those optimal nutritional needs is with a balanced grain ration. And I don't believe that that's true. I believe that there is uh, an unknown possibility. And what we haven't totally got an answer for is what is that unknown possibility? So what I do and what I encourage other people to do is to question what we're told is possible, you know, to really question what we're told is possible and reasonable. And to not think that's going to happen in a year, you know, we won't have the, we won't crack that riddle in one year of phone calls and research and action. But we probably can crack that riddle in 20 years, you know, maybe 30 years, 40 years. I don't know. You know, the Earth's going to be here for a long time. And when I um, when I drive around and I see really big factories going up, I think to myself, well, the industrial world is planning on being here for long enough to reap the benefit of this huge factory that they're building. Why not the permaculture movement? You know, let, let's get on that same sort of thought where in 40 years, what will be the effect of our actions? So I guess that's just the last thing is I encourage people to just bear in mind that today is part of the 40-year plan. You know, today we should all make some sort of measurable, tangible progress towards what we feel our calling in life is. Well, thank you, John, for joining me today for this interview. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. And everybody who's listening, uh, daylight's burning. Get to it if you think it's important. And that was John Arbuckle. You can find out about his line of pork snack sticks and sign up for more information at baconsnacksticks.com. Before we get to my lessons from the show, I do want to add that John said to me after we recorded the interview and we're wrapping up that he is trying to get President Obama to pardon one of his turkeys this year as part of the presidential turkey pardon. If anyone out there has a connection and can help make that happen, I'd really appreciate it. I think that'd be pretty awesome for somebody associated with our community to have one of their animals featured for such a large public stage. Uh, From there, the two takeaways for this episode include one practical to our long-term work, the other inspirational to our individual lives. The first, the practical one, is that John is experimenting in his practices and seeing what works and backing it up with evidence. He saw a problem, 
a lack of grain deliveries, found a solution, pasture, and foraging his animals, and is now expanding on it further by exploring perennial pastures and a reduced and eventually a grain-free diet. This adds to what we know and can be used when talking about permaculture, perennial polycultures, and agroforestry to individuals who matter, to the policymakers, to our clients, to our customers, to our fellow designers, if they're working with someone who's looking to integrate animals into their practice. More of this kind of experimental work needs to be done so that we can back up what it is that we're talking about. Are you currently practicing citizen science and experimenting on matters of permaculture, whether that is alternative energy or animal husbandry or advanced landscape techniques? Get in touch. The other of the, the other of this for me is that we should, as Bill Mollison implores us, take responsibility for our lives and that of our descendants. John reminds us that time is marching on whether we act on our dreams or not. Whether we plant a tree today, tomorrow, or never, time and the world continue with us or without us. I practice permaculture to create a world where I want to live and make changes every day to see that happen. All of us can do that, regardless of the place where we find ourselves in our lives. We can create an abundant world for all life. What world do you want to live in? What are you doing to see that world become a reality? I'd like to hear from you. Call 717-827-6266 or email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. You can also send me a letter if you'd like. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, D-A-U-P-H-I-N, Pennsylvania, 17018. You can also like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash thepermaculturepodcast, or follow me on Twitter where I am at permaculturecst. Until the next time, change the world by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.